So I often find people forget how good they are. You know, I'm listening to them and I'm going, oh my God, you're amazing. And they don't see it at all. And self-awareness is just something we don't focus on. We're always outward focused. You know, what's going on with that person? What are they doing? Hi, my name is John O'Driscoll, and you are very welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Ask yourself one question. Have you a blueprint for success? Are you doing all you can do to get where you want to be? Join me and my guests each week as we discuss their blueprint for success. So this week's guest on the Blueprint Podcast is Barbara Nugent. Barbara is the owner of EQ.ie and Transilient Coaching, and she's a former president of Network Ireland Cork Branch. Barbara is a facilitator, a mentor, a trainer, and an expert in all things to do with emotional intelligence. I'm very much looking forward to this chat. I've known Barbara for a couple of years, and she's always a mine of information. So without further ado, Barbara, you're very welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. How are you? I'm good, John, and yourself? Very good, thanks. Very good. Barbara, emotional intelligence, um, it's something that's often bandied about. You hear that someone is, lacks empathy or has low emotional intelligence. What exactly can that be boiled down to, or is that too vague a question? Have you got a couple of hours? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I suppose at its most basic level, and people do misunderstand it, so people will talk about things like empathy, or they'll talk about people who can't read the room, or they'll talk about people who say the first thing that comes into their head. Um, and these are all elements of emotional intelligence. I suppose the way that, that I teach it and where I teach it is in the scope of, of, of being a leader or being a business owner or an employee in an organization where, well, basically anywhere that you're working with people. Um, and if you were to really kind of describe it, it's really to understand that as, you know, people we're driven by our emotions and we might be conscious of it. You know, some, you know, when you get up in the morning, what do I feel like having for breakfast? That's an emotion. You know, what do I feel like? I don't feel like going to the gym. That's an emotion. And so what we don't do very often is kind of look under the hood and see what is that? But if we were to understand that we're driven by our emotions, whatever they might be, that that drives our reactions it drives our decision making and of course marketing people understand this really really well and they're able to tap into our unconscious emotions and get us to buy things we didn't even know we wanted so emotions are a big thing and they're certainly something when i started working you know leave your emotions at the door like don't bring them in here but the mm. fact is we bring our whole person to work with us so the idea is really that you know, in a moment and any given moment, you have an emotion. So somebody says something to you, it might trigger something. It might trigger a lack of confidence. It might trigger anger. It might trigger defensiveness. And in that moment, how do we react? And emotional intelligence is understanding that. And instead of reacting, it's taking a couple of minutes and responding. So it's the difference between reaction and responding. And sometimes we respond better than we react. So when we react to something, that's emotional. When we respond, we give our cognitive brain a couple of seconds to catch up with our emotions, and then hopefully we respond. And that has better outcomes. I suppose what I'm about is how do we have better outcomes from our interactions with people in whatever kind of jobs that we do? I love on your website, it's that um, 
emotions drive people and people drive businesses. So obviously it's um, two sides of the one kind that if, if something's off in, in a person, their performance is going to be off, it's going to affect the business. You obviously worked for years in a finance role in big corporations, moved into a self-employed role. Did you learn a lot from being a manager of teams within an organization? When I started out on my own, it was really to be the person I didn't have. As a leader in a corporate organization at a very senior level, a lot of pressure, a very sales-driven organization. So I'm in finance. And just the, 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 the different, I suppose, balances within organizations and where the shift is and where the focus is and who feels valued and who doesn't feel valued. And just the pace, the absolute pace, it was relentless. Um, and at the time, we were given blackberries back in the day. So super cool until we realized that meant that we had to be on all night. So that kind of pace. And I suppose as a, as a leader, I suppose I was in my 30s at the time. I had two small children. My husband was working away from home and there was no support. I, I didn't, I don't, you couldn't say, I don't know, because there was that feeling of judgment and also, oh God, she's not up to it now. We'll have to, you know she's out the door, that kind of fear kind of, um, I suppose, factor. And so what, what happened to me was that I actually decided I would learn how to be a leader. So I was already leading those people, learned on the job, learned over 25 years of experience, but I'd never actually studied leadership. And I went off and I did an IMI postgrad diploma back in school after 25 years. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And as part of that, I got some coaching. At the time, coaching wasn't a thing here in Ireland. And uh, I thought, God, why didn't somebody tell me that you could find somebody who would listen to you without judgment, who would draw the best out of you, who would support you and that you could actually say to them, I haven't a notion here that you couldn't say at work without some kind of repercussion. And so that for me was an absolute life changer. And as part of that, then I did emotional intelligence 360 and I learned a lot. And I suppose when I moved into my role, you know, as an executive coach and a, a, a trainer in emotional intelligence, it was really around what I had learned and what I saw in myself and the difference that it made. So for me, understanding that I lacked self-confidence, that I certainly had imposter syndrome, that people thought I was amazing. They thought I was an amazing leader because they all fed into it. And I didn't feel that I was. And so when I worked on that and I really made efforts to link outside of my finance zone, I learned a huge amount about business, met all of the people in other departments and learned about their challenges and found my own career being propelled upwards. And that was huge. So for me, it's about bringing all that to other people in similar situations and saying, look, you know, you just have to look a little deeper and you have to work on yourself. So we do a lot of this cognitive stuff. We work in our heads, we work on tasks, we work on goals, we work on, you know, what, what's on my to-do list, but we don't work on ourselves. And that for me was the big learning. So are you prepared to actually look at yourself as you are without any judgment? You are who you are. You are where you are. But what are the things that hold you back and how can we move that forward? So really, that's where it was born out of. There does seem to be more openness now to coaching and bringing in external help and external consultants like is it the the american multinational model of you know wellness and you know trying to make the workplace a more harmonious place or is it societal changes 
specialization of labor and you know you can't be all things to all people um i think over the over the last number of years there's just been a, a big interest in leadership as 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 a whole um i think you know the world has changed so much over the last few years and i don't think we've ever needed good leaders more than we need them now um and so and when i talk about leaders i'm not talking about people at the top i'm talking about people who recognize the situation and are prepared to step up and do or say something so it doesn't matter what your level is in your organization are you somebody who can take the lead on something and say you know we need to do something here or here's what i'm going to do or whatever it is so when i talk about leadership i'm talking about people who are prepared to step up to to move things forward and i suppose you're right in the sense of the idea around wellness um, i'm meeting a lot of people who are just quite frankly and we use the word burnt out but who are just, their resilience is just like, they've run out of battery. And so, you know, how do we support those people? Because they're good people. We don't want to lose them out of our organizations. They've got great experience, but they're just at a period in time where they're, they're, they've just run out of steam. And so how do we support them better? And I think the larger organizations are willing to invest in their people in this way to uncover their strengths. So I meet a lot of people who let's say are going for promotion and, and their manager will get them some coaching um, to help them to articulate their strengths and the things that they can do and to articulate what they've done. So I often find people forget how good they are. You know, I'm listening to them and I'm going, oh my God, you're amazing. And they don't see it at all. So sometimes we forget that and we, and we need to be reminded. But then I think there's an element of organizations who still don't see the value they, they, they look at the cost and they say, oh, it's too expensive, but they don't look at, well, if my employee leaves me because they're really unhappy here, um, I've got to tr- bring in someone else. I've got to train them up for six months. And that person is left with all the knowledge that they've gained over the last number of years. So there is still an element of that. Um, and I think it's shifting, but it's shifting slowly. And, and, and what's behind it really is, I think organizations feel it's important now to invest in the people that they have, to keep them. So we have the great resignation, people leaving all over the place. Um, and, and companies can't afford to lose that. And they don't want to. You know, people who are in their jobs, who are happy, who are productive, who are collaborative, you know, the value you get out of those kinds of people who are really engaged as opposed to, you know, people who are there because they need the paycheck and they come in, they do the nine to five, they leave and they give them more than that. So you, you, get, you get back exponentially what, what you give, I think, to employees. Do you see a big shift in people's outlook when you know when COVID happened? There seemed to be like you you, you mentioned the big resignation. All of a sudden, people could work from home, or they could work remote, or they didn't have to be on an airplane or on a train morning, noon, and night. Like, have you seen a big change in people's maybe attitudes since then? Absolutely, absolutely. That moment of particularly at the beginning where we all just stopped. Um, I think people started to reevaluate their lives that they, you know, are, as you say, commuting. The big, the big change is the commute time. You know, people spending an hour and a half to get to work and an hour and a half to get home. And now they can, you know, get up, drop the kids to school, take the dog for a walk and still be at the desk at nine o'clock. You know, so people have suddenly woken up and thought, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. It's been around for a long time. You know, we had hot desking and things like that. But we didn't really buy into it. And part of it was a lack of trust from organizations to their employees. And I think what they've seen is that people work 
just a, just as hard, if not harder, from home because they have less distractions and they're just getting on and doing their stuff. And now suddenly people are saying, you know what, I don't I don't want to work like this. You know, I, I know there are organizations who have given, you know, an edict to their employees. You need to come back to the office and people are going, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Um, yeah, because I mean, if they were able to do the job for the last several years and, as you said, work harder and, if anything, from home, um, then they could go, why, why should it all of a sudden change? Like, you know, the, they were, the, the mandate was, was written by the company that if you could work from home, then drive on, and all of a sudden it's, it's been changed. So um, it, does, it does seem to be unfair that way, you know? Yeah, and I think people are valuing their lives more. I know when I worked in my in my corporate role, it was very much, you know, pressurized. You were on all the time. You were expected to answer the email at 10 o'clock. You know, it was it was everything. You were in this bubble and we all did it and we all bought into it. And it was only when I left, I remember, you know, going to an event and saying where I worked and they were like, who? Don't you know who we are? Because that had been my my life. That I had poured everything into that, along with all my colleagues. That was the world that we lived in, and we didn't look outside that world. And I think yeah. that that happens to people, particularly in larger organisations. But then, you know, maybe in small companies too, where it's all on your shoulders and you've got to drive it on. You know, maybe that happens as well. That it becomes the only thing, and you know, things like family and health and you know, where you live, you know, I mean, we saw all those great videos of people at the beginning where they were, you know, going out for walks and sharing it with their colleagues. Oh, I never knew this path existed and I've lived here for 15 years. So now suddenly we're looking around us and we're saying, actually, you know, there is more to this and we don't have to live in this bubble and we don't have to work 24-7. We can do our jobs effectively. We can run great organizations and we can you know, enjoy our lives. And I think that shift has, has been quite big. Do you see a difference between people who are self-employed and who work for, say, multinationals in terms of their need for a certain area of coaching? Yeah, I mean, everybody is different and everyone brings their own selves to, to a coaching session. And I suppose one of the big things for me is never to assume that I know the answer here simply because I've been in that role. Um, or I've been in that situation or whatever, uh, because the elements are always different. There are always different elements. There's different people at play. There's different goals at play. So people bring themselves and they bring their their unique situation. Um, but what I do often see, and, and often I, I write about it, I might have a week where there's a team where everybody I'm talking to is talking about the same thing. So I, I might have a week where everyone is talking about managing the expectations of people around them. So the people mm-hmm. above them and the people, you know, in their team. And, you know, suddenly in, in a particular week, I might see that people are talking about this. You know, they expect too much from me, you know, and I might say, well, you know, did you have the conversation about what do you expect from me and what do I expect from you? And and so they that might be a conversation where a lot of people are talking about that for a week. Or, you know, you might have another area like you know conflict is always a big one for no matter whether you're a large organization or a small organization if you're managing people there's conflict of some description and so that could be a week where I find people are having very you know having to have the tough conversation and how do I have the tough conversation and we might walk through it you know we might actually walk through the conversation and say well what do you want to communicate how do you want to communicate it what do you not want to say how do you not want it to end up and how do you want the person to feel when you're finished 
And so that might be, you know, a week where I find people are having those kinds of conversations. So you'll always have the human themes, you know, things like delegation, things like micromanaging. You know, these are all very human things. They just happen in different contexts with different elements that will impact them. And so you might have, you know, a person in, a, say, a family business and there's conflict there, which might look very different from an employee having an issue with their manager or vice versa. But at the bottom of it are all those human emotions. So coming back to our emotional intelligence, all those human things, whether it's, you know, resentment, whether it's a lack of confidence, whether it's feeling defensive or minding your patch or all those kinds of things which are essentially human would give rise to these conversations in the organization. And I suppose what I try to do then is say, well, okay, why do you feel like that? What's driving that? And, you know, could you be right? Could you be wrong? What have you thought about it differently? And how are you going to have that conversation now? Neil O'Brien was on our second podcast and he spoke about the importance of mood. And he said, there's no such thing as, as a confident person. People can get into confident moods or they can be in, you know, in unconfident moods. Is it the same in emotions? Like, can you can you be in, in a, how do they put it, a kind of a, a phase of low emotions where things just seem to be kind of caving in on you? And then you can be in high emotions where nothing seems to be a problem. Yeah, and, and it's, it's very much, um, it, it can go like that. I think with emotions, it's a, I, I suppose a, a mood is, is something that prevails over time. I suppose what we find with emotional intelligence is that there's a trigger. So something happens and that will flip um, without getting too much into neuroscience, which I'm madly into. But, you know, how does the brain work? So what happens is there's the trigger. So let's say somebody cuts you up in the traffic. And so you react, you put the hand on the horn, you're gesticulating and saying rude words or whatever it might be. So what's that about? So what that's about is somebody has encroached on my territory. That was my space and you just cut in there. That wasn't your space. I was there first. So that goes back to even, you know, our caveman days when this was my cave and you just came in here. So it's really, it, it triggers something quite deep inside of us that we're not, you know, we're not aware. We're not thinking that when we, you know, when we get angry because somebody put us up. So we're going back to, you know, do I fight or flight? Am I going to fight this guy with a hand on the horn? Am I going to chase him down the motorway and whatever? Um, or do I just freeze and say, look, I'm just going to let that go. It's how do we react in a moment? And, and that's really what catches us. That's where we have these conflict moments because we don't take that time to say, is this a conflict moment? Why do I feel conflicted with this person? You know, is it the way they talk? Is it because they say things that I don't like? Is it because they have different values and beliefs than me? And that's the other thing. So someone cuts you up in the traffic. Your belief is that people shouldn't do that. The person who does it doesn't believe that. They believe, take every inch. That's what they believe. So you have a conflict of values there. That person may have been usurped by a colleague taking their idea or cutting in with a suggestion before them. And the trigger then was when the person flowed for the traffic. It was like, this isn't going to happen to me anymore. And I'm sick of this. Exactly. Exactly. And so we form these neural pathways. So quite often you find that when a X happens, we do Y. And we do it over and over and over and over again, completely unconsciously. So when Pat says something, I immediately go, no. And it doesn't really matter what Pat said. 
I, my reaction to passive. And so that's a kind of a neural pathway that we, a habit. It's a habit that we've gotten into. And so the first part of that is recognizing it. And that's the hardest part because a lot of the time it's unconscious. So we don't, we're not actually aware that we're doing this. So, so building that is, is the tricky part. I know you're, you're a sporting woman. You're big into rowing. Um, a sport that obviously involves a lot of resilience you're out back in the elements depending on what race you're in you might be in the boat on your own or with one other or whatever it might be we saw Limerick Hurlers winning three All-Irelands in a row and Caroline Courage their sports psychologist spoke quite openly about the work that she's done with the Limerick Hurlers how does emotional intelligence feed into a sporting environment you know I remember reading a golf uh, psychology book written by Bob Rotella and he was on about that, like, you know, if there's water on a hole, you can be almost certain that that's all the golf from the folks on, because it's like the worst case scenario. There's water up by the green, so I can't come near the water. Fast forward five minutes later, then the golfers are probably inside the water. So how does that play into the realm of sport? Yeah, I, I think where you're getting to then, you know, is around a self-awareness of how I think. So what am I thinking in this moment? So am I thinking, OK, water in the hole means I'm going to end up there, for example, or, or whatever. You know, so if I'm getting into a boat and I'm thinking I'm going to capsize here, chances are I will. You know, so I've got to really focus on what I do well and I've got to be aware. And, and the awareness is something I think I think you become a little bit more aware as you get older. But but there are people and I've met and I'm sure you've met people who are completely unaware of how they impact other people. And so building that awareness of what am I thinking here? What's going on in my head? What's driving this emotion, this fear? So when I learned it, we talked about um, rowing. So I've always rowed in crew boats, which are relatively stable because it's a couple of people in it, a little bit bigger. But during lockdown, of course, we couldn't. So I had to learn how to, to scull in a single, which is a whole different kettle of fish, at least in my mind. It was. You know, it's like sitting on an egg and trying to stay upright on a very fast flowing river. The first, second, third time I went out, I was literally terrified. I was absolutely, I mean, I, I had pains up my arms. I was gripping on so tight. And I knew, A, I can swim. B, the banks of the river are just kind of there. C, there's a safety boat. You know, the chances of something actually happening to me are very, very slim. And yet I was terrified. So this wasn't a logical thing. This was an innate fear. My body is saying to me, you're going to die. And, and so how do we become aware of that? So I'm sitting in the boat and I know what's happening. And I'm saying to myself, no, you're not. You're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on every stroke one at a time. And that was the way that I trained myself. But quite often we're not aware that we're thinking like that. We're just terrified. And so we can't get past it. And so I think, you know, self-awareness and, and being able to tap into how you feel in a moment whether it's on a golf course or whether it's in a boat or whether it's, you know, hurling or whatever it is, is what's going on with me right now and challenging that. Where's the evidence for this? How do I know this is actually true? Just because I think it doesn't make it true. And, and so managing those thoughts, and I'm sure, you know, that's where a lot of sports psychologists will go, you know, the feeling of maybe I'm not good enough or so-and-so is better than me or I'm not fast enough, or I'm not whatever enough. You know, where's the evidence for that? And how do you realize in that moment 
okay, this thought is really not helpful to what I'm just about to do. So if you take people who take penalty shots, I'm sure that's the most awful place to be. You know, everybody's there. They're all watching. The game is hanging on you and this shot. You know, that person can't walk up the ball with, I'm not really good enough. Maybe Pat should have taken the shot. They've got to walk up there with all limiting beliefs out of their heads. And in order to do that, they need to know what they are. They need to know what's going on. And they need to know what they're thinking. And then you can reframe that. I am good enough. I am able. I've done this before. I can do it again. Sports psychology uh, uses a lot of that in terms of what's going on with me. And self-awareness is just something we don't focus on. We're always outward focused. You know, what's going on with that person? What are they doing rather than what's happening here? I referenced before a fantastic book called The Psychology of Money by um, Morgan Housel, who's an American financial journalist and commentator. And he spoke about how people's negative self-talk can actually affect their financial decisions. That like, you know, people won't invest because it's too risky and they've heard of people who have lost all their money or, you know, people say, there's no point in me even trying to invest because I only earn X and you have to be super wealthy to you know, to, to have any kind of level of return. Emotions around money, does that ever come up when you're working with people that like, you know, people are stressed about money or, you know, you, you often hear of emotional eating. Sometimes in my job as a financial advisor, I, I come across what I would say probably emotional spending is that someone, you know, when something good happens, they make a splurge on, on something that, you know, they may or may not be able to afford, but it's, it's like a, a reward system. Does that ever, do, did you ever come across that in your day-to-day work? Well, what you'd often come across um, is that idea of worth. So I'm, I'm, I'm worth it, <laughs> I'm worth it like the L'Oreal ad, or, yeah. or I'm not worth it. So I often come across people who don't value what they do. Um, they can't charge enough for it or they can't articulate it as something worthwhile. So, you know, they don't see that what they do is unique or different or of value. And um, so you'll see that, say, with people going for promotion or people who maybe, you know, want to put themselves forward for a pay rise, for example. Um, and often you'll find it in entrepreneurs or, you know, or small business that, Oh, sure, nobody will pay that for you, gosh. There's no, God, anyone can do that, you know? And so that, that's a, that can be a real issue because it, it stops people from having, it's, it's the self-esteem and self-worth. And you're right in the sense of, of the emotional spending and the emotional, you know, I mean, we've all heard of retail therapy and, you know, people splurging out on their credit cards and they know they can't afford it. And that's probably more of an emotional thing in terms of uh, reward, so I've done something and I need to reward myself. And again, that comes into the habit loop. And if it's something that becomes a problem for people where they're vastly overspending, it's how can they re- replace that reward with something else and um, to break that habit loop, which is quite difficult. But, you know, it's not impossible. And, and it's again coming back to, am I aware that every time something good happens to me, I spend money rather than putting it into my pension and if I put it into my pension okay I'm not going to get the reward now which is what we're after a lot of the time is the immediate you know gratification and that's part of emotional intelligence that ability to wait for reward so not have an immediate reward now which is of course what what investment is all about so how do I replace that spending money which gives me a very short-term kick 
versus, you know, putting whatever I have, however small, into, for example, my pension where I will get reward, but it'll be a bit longer term. And I think part of our culture has become that instant gratification, so that that dopamine kick where we do something and we get an immediate response, an immediate reward. I feel good for now. I might feel good later. So I have the big dinner. It's absolutely amazing. But I feel terrible in a couple of hours time Mm -hmm. Um, versus, you know, waiting for reward. It's called impulse control. So that's one of the kind of leadership skills identified in emotional intelligence. It's to be able to control that impulse to, you know, have that immediate uh, gratification or build something over time that will reward me in a year, in two years, in 10 years or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I mean, emotions are behind are, are behind every decision and our ability to make those good decisions or to wait or to have that control over our impulse to spend now or spend later. That brings me nice to the next question. Your best and worst financial decision. Um, I think Aircom shares have to come under the worst <laughs> uh, because it was you, a long you, time ago. You and thousands more. Yes, yeah. And it was for me, and, and we talked about risk and being risk averse and all that sort of Like for me at that time, it was, I don't remember how long ago it was, but I had invested something like £2,000 at the time, which was a huge amount of money. Like it was really a lot and it was, it was all my savings at that time. And it was a no brainer. Everybody was doing, we were all going to make money on this. And it was the first time I had invested in anything. So it was such a bad experience, you know, and yes, has that made me risk averse? You bet it has. You know? <laughs> so for people like you, anyone who says air come shares is going to be a hard selfie, <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, you know, Definitely that was that was it. And I think why why did we, you know, all jump on there? Because it seems so guaranteed. It's it was sold to us in a particular way. We didn't ask the questions. And it was, you know, I suppose it was kind of government led. Everybody was, you know, so so that would definitely um rank up there along with all the other people. And I think as a best investment, genuinely it sounds maybe a little corny, but you know, I suppose I didn't start a pension until I was probably in my mid-30s um, simply because I couldn't or I perceived let's say that I couldn't afford it and you know when I joined an organization where there was a company pension and you know they paid a bit in and I paid a bit in I started to pay in as much as I could so there were you know voluntary contributions that I could make which weren't matched by the company but I really started to put whatever I could every month no matter how small into it and as as time went on and I had a bit more money and I was earning a bit more I started to put more and more and more in and when I eventually left corporate life I was you know I was very happy that I had put together a nest egg for myself um, just as a person so not even as a family but just as an individual person that I had you know put that money and I could have spent it on handbags and I'm sure I did spend it on the odd handbag <laughs> you know but I didn't I just said no this is important I was glad I was really glad that I had that there behind me for for whenever I I, I do hang up my my boots talk about Network Cork you were president of the of the uh, Network Ireland the Cork branch last year seems to be a really really thriving business network you obviously get a lot out of it you're very involved in it just talk me briefly through, I suppose, you know, what, you know, you do. Yeah. So Network Cork, I joined Network Cork in 2014 when I left my corporate 
life and discovered that I had no network. I didn't know anybody. So back to that conversation of, you know, don't you know who we are? I had lived in this bubble. You know, granted, I had small family and, and, and all the rest of it, but I'd never made an effort to know people outside of my organization. And so um, I joined Network Cork um, at the time and just met people, just met really welcoming uh, women who were doing, oh my God, all manner of things that I didn't even know about when I was in my corporate role. And I suppose what I got from Network Cork from the get-go was acceptance, was support. And when I say support, you know, a lot of it was, you know, that's great. Keep going now. And here I'll post your thing on social media and I'll come to your event. And so we do a lot of that. You know, we help to just raise people up and give them that confidence. And so I suppose what I've gotten from it are, you know, our friends. And, and, and this is why Network Cork is maybe a little bit different than a lot of networks is that we make friends and we support friends and we share, you know, everybody's what everybody is doing. Um, we're behind them. We'll push them out there. We will go to everything. And so that's really, you know, I've, I've been involved in Network Ireland at, at, at the Network Ireland level um, as treasurer. And one of the things we talked about is, you know, what makes us different and I think that's what it is. It's the connections. The people that I met when I went in there in 2014 are still my friends and they still support me and I still support them. And so what we do is during lockdown, it was very different. There was two of us, two lockdown presidents, myself and Margarita Sullivan. What we did is we shifted everything online and we just ran a lot more coffee mornings, events, workshops, anything we could think of to keep people connected. Because, you know, if you're a small business owner, you can feel very isolated very quickly. So it was really to make sure that we were catching all the members and we were reaching out to them and making sure they were all OK. And um, so now we've moved back into in-person, which is just amazing. And so we have an event every month and it can be a speaker. Last month it was our barbecue. You know, sometimes there's a focus like finance, for example, and we will have people coming on and talk. And then there's a, you know, a part of it where we just get to chat and meet each other. And there's no pressure. So I know, you know when I started going out there first, like the pressure of, you know, saying who I am and what I do. And I'd be so nervous and I'd fumble all my words. And, and, and in some ways, I didn't even know how to articulate what I did. So we help people to do that um, so that they're comfortable getting out there. And, you know, it's amazing to watch businesses grow, small businesses. It's, it's just great to see that. So that's what we do. And we're still doing it for, I think, nearly 30, more than 30 years in Cork um, and have gone through recessions and pandemics uh, and still, still going strong. Barbara, I could talk to you literally all day because you're such an interesting person to talk to. Could you give me your blueprint for success? I always ask guests to say it in 10 words or less, but maybe when it comes to emotional intelligence and your work, we'll, we'll extend it beyond the 10 words. I think the very first thing, John, is to figure out what success means to you. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, I think you've done a lot. So we often follow what everybody else is doing. We're watching everybody else. You know, what is success for you? Is it getting 10,000 likes on your TikTok or is it making X amount of money or is it to work a three-day week or what is it? So people often don't do that. They don't sit at the beginning and say, okay, what am I looking to get out of this? So I think the first thing is what does success mean to you and stick with it. Don't be distracted. The one thing that I do, and I'm sure other people do it, is maybe to sit down, you know, every quarter and say, okay, what have I what have I achieved? Because we forget what we achieve. We forget how well we've done. We always think, oh, I haven't done this and the to-do list. And when we look back over three months, we'll have done a lot. We really will. 
And then it's just maybe to plan out, okay, what do I want to achieve in the next three months? So three months for me is long enough to get something done, but it's not so long that you lose momentum. And so checking in with myself or with a coach or with a mentor or whoever you, you want to just look back and then look forward. To me, they're, I suppose, the most logical steps. And then, you know, making sure that everything you do in your day brings you closer to your goal. So, you know, sitting down, swiping through Instagram all day long is not going to bring you close, or maybe it will, I don't know. But, you know, don't spend huge amounts of time doing things that are not bringing you closer to your goal. And, and that's one that I struggle with because I'm great for helping people. People say, oh, I need help. Oh, yeah, I'm there. And sometimes now I have to say, look, I can't. Because if I spend three hours with you, then that's three hours I'm not spending on what, I, what I'm trying to do. So trying to make sure that you're spending most of your time, you know, on something that brings you closer rather than random things. Um, so that's four things. So what does success mean for you? Look back every quarter. What have I achieved? What am I doing next? And focus on things that bring you closer to your goal. So not to ask you too personal of a question, but if, if someone were to help Barbara at the moment, what could they do to get you closer to your goal? Oh, gosh. For me, consistency is, is always an issue. So staying consistent. So I do get distracted, just like lots of people. Um, so I think that accountability is always very helpful for me to check in. And I do that, you know, kind of every quarter. I check in with somebody to say, OK, am I still there? Yeah, definitely helping me and, and saying to me, hey, like, you know, do you really need to be involved in that now? <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> You said you weren't taking on any more things. Why yeah. are you here? You're not going on any more committees. You said you weren't. Just, just say no. Just say no. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. I'd urge anyone to check out eq.ie. Nice and easy to remember. Barbara, we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks again. Thanks, John. Thanks a million. Thank you all for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information about me, John O'Driscoll, and my day job as a financial advisor, please visit blueprintfp.ie. For more information on the podcast or to listen to other episodes, please visit the-blueprint.ie. Catch you all in the next episode. Take care.